everyone. This is Safeguarding Matters, a podcast by Safeguarding Resource and Support Hub, RSH. RSH supports organizations in the aid sector, both development and humanitarian, to strengthen their safeguarding policy and practice. My name is Oge Chukudoze, the National Representative for RSH Nigerian Hub. I'm a safeguarding professional with about 10 years in safeguarding and other experiences, including child protection, education, and emergency response. I've been in the aid sector for about 19 years. In this podcast series, we will discuss matters related to safeguarding in the aid sector. We'll have conversations with thought leaders and practitioners who can offer insights that can help us all to better understand safeguarding and improve our practices. In this episode, I will be talking with Professor Rafatu Abdulhamid and Nathaniel Awapila. The panelists will be discussing about safeguarding risks in the education sector. The reference documents are the two tip sheets developed by RSH Nigerian Hub on safeguarding risk in education in both formal and non-formal education programs in Nigeria. I am very pleased to introduce Professor Rafatu and Nathaniel. Hi, Prof. Please Hello. do want to tell us more about yourself. Okay, thank you very much, Madam Oge. I'm, I'm happy to be here. My name, as um, you've heard it all, is Rafatu Abdul Hamid, a professor of Islamic studies with the University of Abuja, Faculty of Art, Department of Islamic Studies. I'm also the program coordinator of the Center for Gender Security Studies and Youth Advancement in University of Abuja. I was born in, in Just Plateau State. I obtained all my educational career from University of Joso. I also have my postgraduate diploma in education from the same University of, uh, University of Jos. I'm a member of different intellectual associations which include the Nigerian Association of Teachers of Arabic and Islamic Studies. I'm also a member of International Research and Development Institute, among others. I won a, I'm also a postdoctoral fellow with the American Council of Learning Societies, African Humanities Program. My interest is in Islam, is Islam and Gender Studies, of course. I have published many articles, both nationally and internationally. I supervised and graduated many students. I'm, I'm also happy to inform you that um, I was also part of the resource persons who I have done a recent review of the national policy on gender in education. I'm also a member of so many humanitarian organizations, such as the Federation of Muslim Women Associations in Nigeria, the Women in Da'awa Initiative for Muslim Women Sisters Advancement, to mention but a few. This is just in brief about my humble self. Once again, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Prof. Um, great to hear all your achievements. Let's come to you, Nathaniel. Please, can you tell our audience more about yourself? Oh, thank you very much, Ogi. I'm happy to be here with you and uh, greetings to our audience. I'm Nathaniel Sen Awapila, and thanks for the opportunity of having me on the program today. I started my career in 1996, and for 10 years, I was involved in teaching with brothers of the Christian schools who run schools around the world. Uh, but I was involved in teaching for about 10 years, and then I moved fully into development work, where I have worked since the past 20 years. Uh, currently, I serve on the Board of Trustees of the Child Protection Network in Nigeria, where I had also coordinated child protection activities in Benue State for about 10 years. 
I have consulted on issues of child protection, peace building, sexual and gender-based violence and related issues for international organizations and national organizations, as well as supporting governments to develop strategies to end violence against children. My academic background, I studied philosophy. I also studied uh, peace building and studied development studies. I did my development studies at the Catholic University of Eastern Africa. I studied uh, peace building in uh, Ghana and uh, my philosophy, I did it with the Catholic University as well. I'm happy to be part of this program and I hope to share my experience as maybe needed. Thank you. Thank you very much, Prof. Rafatu and uh, Mr. Nathaniel, for that introduction of yourself. Glad to hear all about your experiences and um, the work you've been doing, even in the education sector. Now, for our listeners, I want to first start by giving an overview of what safeguarding is. Since we are talking about safeguarding risks in education, it's important that our listeners understand first what safeguarding is. Safeguarding is actually still relatively a new word in, in the aid sector, and some people might be wondering what it is. So safeguarding really means preventing and responding to harm caused by our organization or institution to the people working in the organization and to the people we work with, you know, including community members, program participants, who sometimes we refer to as beneficiaries, as well as those who are impacted by our work. So what this means is that, you know, safeguarding is about preventing and responding to harm caused by the organization. And when we mean organization, who are we referring to? We are referring to the staff, volunteers, consultants, you know, anyone that represents the organization is, is that organization. And also the program activities of the organization. So safeguarding is geared towards ensuring that we do not harm the people who come close to us or who come in contact with us as a result of the way our staff volunteers work or the way we implement programs. And this harm can be in various forms. It can be harm regarding sexual exploitation, abuse, and harassment caused by staff, volunteers, or other representatives. It can also be harm caused by how we implement our program activities when we don't really take a risk approach to assess our programs and ensure that we are not going to cause further harm or to the community members. So that is what safeguarding is. So it's about the harm, you know, preventing and responding. The responding aspect is also to make sure that once harm happens, you're able to follow it through, provide support to the survivor, and, you know, also ensure that you, are, you conduct investigation to ensure that the perpetrator, you know, is, is, uh, or is disciplined in, uh, in accordance with the organization's uh, policies, depending on, you know, the, the gravity of, of the offense. So that is what safeguarding is. It's about the organization. So here now we're talking about education sector. So it's about ensuring that we prevent harm and response to harm when it occurs in education institutions. So that is a brief overview of what safeguarding is to help our listeners better understand that before we move on to talk more deeply about safeguarding risks in education. Now, let me begin with you, Professor Rafatu. You were one of the consultants that developed the tip sheets on safeguarding risk in education program. We developed that tip sheets uh, and, and you conducted some activities, you know, to help identify the risk of safeguarding in education programs. Please, can you explain to us the process in the development of that resource? Okay, thank you very much, Madam Ogi, once again. 
the process in the development of resource begins with a DEX review, which we conducted and we obtained data from relevant area sources, such as the publications by government, individuals, international agencies, and other documents with information of safeguarding risk in education. We also followed it up by a fieldwork, which was conducted specifically in Bauchi and Abuja. We were, two, we were two as consultants. One is for the formal, which is my partner, and I also took part for the non-formal. So my partner conducted you know, detailed fieldwork in Abuja, where she also had FGD and KI, that is the focus group discussion, and then the key formal interview. I traveled down to Bauchi, looking at it as a northeastern part of the country, and I was opportune to have other even other you know, interviewees from other parts of the Northeast, like the Borno, like Yobe, and so on and so forth. So it, is, it was a kind of covering much part of Nigeria, because I could remember I had key informant interview with people from even Edo State, another part of South, South, and then South Nigeria, where we obtained a lot of information about safeguarding risks, as well as ways of mitigating or ameliorating this um, safeguarding risks. Thank you. Thank you very much, Prof, for taking us through that process. It's important to, to note that some field work was done and we went to the communities and interacted with different people to be able to uh, enrich the, the, the tip sheets, which we can, I can actually say is very good and people have actually commended the, the tip sheets. We also worked with education in emergency working group to, to develop that. So some of the members of education in emergency working group, we are part of that discussions. Thank you. So let, let's move to you, Nathaniel. From your experience, what are some of the ways CSOs get involved in education program in Nigeria? We know that CSOs, NGO sector, the aid, the aid sector, do get involved in education. Can you share with us from your experience some of these ways that CSOs get involved in education program? Thank you very much, Oge. Like you hinted already, Civil society organizations engage in almost all aspects of education. Over the years, they have continued to increase their involvement in supporting educational activities. For the purpose of this question, I will highlight uh, six areas where CSOs have been involved in supporting education uh, programs. So at the basic level where we have universal basic education uh, running, we have uh, CSOs across Nigeria and in, you know, in their various ways supporting in the areas of ensuring access to education for boys and girls, ensuring equity, and especially where you have locations where you have more of boys engaged in education, you find CSOs supporting through various ways to make sure they increase access and retention of boys and girls in school onto completion period. We find them engaging and supporting quality education, especially in locations where the quality is deemed inadequate. Uh, so school improvement programs have been, you know, and supporting in teaching and learning. A lot of that has taken place across uh, schools in Nigeria. A lot of them support with um, literacy and numeracy, and especially in Nigeria where we have had protracted violent conflict with tens of thousands of people displaced. You also find civil society organizations supporting in displaced locations with education, you know, emergency education in schools, as well as also trying to enhance the security of schools and children in schools. So they also, you know, contribute to capacity building for civic and security in educational institutions, including primary and each uh, of basic educational institutions. Another area has been in supporting with early child care development and education programs, where we find civil society organizations contributing to, towards uh, supporting heads of such institutions and managers plus staff to improve the quality of care and protection of children 
that are involved also in improving their capacity to make the play activities of children more impactful for children. At that level, you have a lot of CSOs that engage in creating awareness on children's rights. You have many of them doing so even in primary schools as well as in secondary schools and at other higher levels as well. We have found that Children and their families have experienced trauma over the years as a result of the humanitarian emergency. So you have a lot of CSOs that are also supporting with psychosocial well-being for children and school communities, uh, as well as strengthening the early uh, childhood education facilities in schools. So that would be providing non-physical support as well. Another important area has been with promoting family life health and education programs. So in this area, you have uh, some CSOs, both local and international, that have contributed significantly to increasing knowledge about sex education, both for boys and girls, and building their skills in, you know, addressing, protecting themselves in the event of potential abuse and exploitation. Another very important area has been in the area of entrepreneurship education for programs. You know, we observe and are aware that a number of children pass through schools, but then don't develop adequate skills to be engaged. And so you have a number of CSOs that support in that area, supporting with skills acquisitions. Sometimes they do it on on school sites. Sometimes they get the children to other locations where the children acquire skills. And uh, all of this is towards building their capacity to engage in various vocational programs and also enabling them. So they support them with uh, doing so for the purpose of gaining employment beyond uh, the basic educational level. There's another very important areas that they have supported uh, with areas of support for gender and inclusive education. That has been an area of, that has been deficient in Nigeria, which is why you don't have adequate number of girls enrolling and re- being retained in school. That is also why we have incidences of sexual and gender-based violence and sexual harassment. And so you have CSOs contributing in that important area by raising awareness about gender issues, educating girls about the need to stay in school, ensuring that educational systems, including schools, uh, mainstream uh, gender issues and ensure inclusion. Last but not the least has been the area of ensuring partnerships between the public and private uh, sectors of the economy. So here especially we find such organizations contributing to infrastructure development for schools. You have some organizations that go and build classrooms or provide chalkboards or provide other infrastructure in schools and also help in ensuring that schools run according to the legal and policy expectations of government. These are just some of the very important contributions that we have had uh, CSOs engaged in in Nigeria over the past uh, couple of decades. Wow, thank you very much, Nathaniel, for those uh, lists. I can see that CSOs really get involved in in education sector very well, from teaching and learning to infrastructure, retention, gender, and, and so many things. Thank you for really taking us through that, Nathaniel. Thank you very much again. All right, Rafatu, what are some of the safeguarding risks associated with education programs from your experience, the development of the tip sheets? You know, you developed that tip sheet and we can already see that the CSOs really get involved. There are so many things that CSOs are doing and can do in in education programs from what Mr. Nathaniel has shared with us. So what are some of the safeguarding risks that you identified from your interaction when you were developing the tip sheet? Okay, thank you very much once again, Madam Oge. In the course of our research, especially during the field work, this was where we got, I got especially, you know, information about the risks associated with um, education. 
that is self-guiding uh, rich in education. One of these, just like I started mentioning earlier, is the issue of child to child. This is where we found out children are fond of bullying each other, fighting, beating, slapping, and even touching, body touching, and other injuries. And we also have discovered that most of the times the perpetrators of this violence are boys. This is one area. Another area which we found that um, there are also risks associated is with the academic or the teaching staff. Sometimes the teachers are found to give corporal punishment. Issue of discrimination is their harassment and even inappropriate touching, touching of the children. You see, these are also risks associated with education. Again, we look at, we also found out that the school location also can, you know, be another factor of self-guiding risks. Our data shows that children may face self-guiding risks in their way to school or from school. And such risks include rape, sexual abuse, and harassment by boys again. Again, there are, there are, there are possibility of accidents which occurs on the way of this student or cross in, maybe in terms of crossing the road or overloaded motorbikes fatigue from working for long hours. So these are mostly associated with the children because of the location. In fact, in one of my interviews with some of the stakeholders, it was confirmed to me that some children even lost their lives in the process of going to some of these places to search for in search of education. So you can see the high risk associated with that. Again, we also have discovered that there are limited facilities such as toilet, which deprives some girls, especially those in men's, during their menstrual period, from going to school because they cannot, you know, get where to change themselves appropriately. And, you know, the girls, are, so the girls, most of the girls are, you know, the habit or the culture of shyness is usually with them. And so they prefer to stay at home, especially during this period. I also have discovered that sometimes when the girls get stained, the boys laugh at them. And so that makes them to be ashamed of coming to school, even where they have finished menstruation because of, you know, that type of taming them. And then they can all easily remember the boys or those that have seen her in that condition. Once she is seen, she, they are easily, she is easily remembered of the incident that happened. So this also uh, is regarded as um, risk associated. Again, we have also discovered that uh, the, there are hard to reach areas, which also, you know, is another safe guiding risk in the children, because especially in the non-formal sector, you discover that centers of learning are usually constructed distance away from all, because you know, they are looking at those areas where there are no learning centers. And so this also has some risks associated to it, just as I have mentioned earlier, the risks of rape and so on and so forth. I think I will stop here for other discussion, inshallah. But these are areas, mostly areas, where safeguarding risks are found, especially in the area of education. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Professor Rafatu. Indeed, it's very enlightening to see that schools need to do more to be able to keep these children safe from harm. Because, you know, we discussed and, and defined safeguarding as what organizations need to put in place to prevent and respond to harm, you know, so that that harm doesn't occur. And then, of course, education sector is a special area where lots of children, you know, are involved, especially looking at, you know, basic education, you know, where this, the tip sheet is focused on basic education in Nigeria is the first nine years of education. And with that, we see that, you know, children really need to be, they are, they are at risk. Children are one of the more vulnerable groups that we have. So having them not having adequate facilities, like Prof, you mentioned, uh, where there is lack of toilets, it might seem simple enough, but you've seen, we've seen now from your discussion how it can actually deprive a girl child from assessing education, which is actually a fundamental right for that child.
And, you, you know, so I, I, I'm even thinking maybe more needs to be done, you know, in schools to sensitize so that people don't shame and make fun of, of the girl child because she's menstruating or, you know, um, stained. And adequate facilities need to be put in place. So let's see again. Nathaniel, maybe I, I will also come to you to hear from you, from your experience. You mentioned to us that you are a teacher with over 10 years experience in, in teaching before you moved into the aid sector. So what are some of the safeguarding risks that you've identified from your experience in the education sector? Thank you again, Okay, So in Prof already mentioned quite a number of risks. I will just add to the list. For So when I was teaching, I was involved in schools where you had both boarding and uh, day students. And so you could have could observe risks associated with both children coming from home, as well as children that were resident in, in the school. And I'm hoping not to repeat what Prof has said already, just to hint that for children coming from home, uh, risks <clears throat> to their being safeguarded included a risk of moving from home to school and from school back home. We observed, and it's also documented through various studies, that children who have to leave from home to school and back face risks along the way. They could be harassed by boys or men. And some, they could target them specific, specifically for sexual offenses against them, including rape, uh, sexual abuse and harassment and so on. Walking long distances from home to school and back, apart from the physical exhaustion that children may be exposed to, also could create emotional stress for them, especially when they are exposed to risks of such nature. As well as possibilities of accidents, we've had children, um, I think Prof mentioned that, children, in cases of children engaging in accidents on their way to school or from, from school. But we also have, uh, we observed that in a number of the schools where, especially which were non-formal and engaging in teaching after students that had um, finished their schooling in the afternoon, those ones would come in the afternoon and stay till sometimes late in the evenings. And so uh, keeping children till that hour of the day also exposed them to additional risks because of staying late out in the, in the, in the evenings. Other things about risks associated with use of facilities, Prof already hinted at that. I think Prof may have mentioned corporal punishment, but you know, I remember as a teacher, they would say uh, only the head of the school had permission to, to administer punishment or where the head of the school would authorize a teacher or other staff to carry out such corporal punishment. But the reality is that you have a number of children in class and out of class and around the school compounds also exposed to corporal punishment. Some of them would result in injuries and that those, those things happened uh, quite frequently. Okay, one which I hate to say, but which is real because when you have children kept in hostels, you have boys kept in hostel. The reality is that a number of boys and a number of girls have been exposed to and sometimes forced to engage in same-sex activities, uh, which uh, I think by law you would call uh, sodomization. Uh, boys are, are forced to have sexual intercourse with their fellow boys of men and girls are doing so too. Those risks exist and are real in education, the educational setting. Those are some of the risks in addition to those already mentioned that I could identify at this point. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nathaniel, indeed, for bringing out this other safeguarding risk from your experience. Yes, you mentioned corporal punishments. I know in Nigeria, we are still battling to see corporal punishments as bad, you know. We always go with the sayings, spare the rod and, and spoil the child. Yes. But, but again, looking at that safeguarding, 
the, the, the school environment in this instance, since we are talking about education or any education program, even if it's not a school, it's you know, for informal settings, it might be somewhere, you know, maybe in, in, the, in an open space or somewhere, that space should be safe for every child that comes in contact. And, and then the, the, the same sex exploitation that you mentioned is, is also um, real, especially maybe in boarding schools. And I know also that in some instances, the teachers also are perpetrators. Yes. Uh, where you have teachers or people who are working in that environment, it might be non-teaching staff, you know, really uh, uh, trying to exploit these children. Even when you also go to tertiary institutions, you also have lots of that. There was a documentary by BBC around that uh, sex for grade that was done in, in Nigeria and um, in Nigerian universities. So um, it's really important to highlight this and I really appreciate how you've shared the safeguarding risk so that it's clear and people know that these things are what is happening, even child to child, molestation, harassment, or inappropriate touching are all forms of abuse and harm that can actually make a child not want to, to go to school. Bullying, you know, might eventually make a child not to go to school or not be happy. Mm. Yes, right? Yeah. Mm. All right, Prof, are there any relevant laws in Nigeria that can help those working in safeguarding to, to refer to that can guide the safeguarding work? Mm. Yes, there are a lot of um, relevant laws and that can help in safeguarding. What we need, to my view, most in Nigeria is implementation. I want to observe here that implementation of these laws is very low. What these laws include one, for example, we have the Federal Republic of Nigerian Child Act of 2003. We have the Federal Minister of Education National Policy on Safety, Security, and Violence Free Schools in Nigeria. In fact, this was uh, created, it was established in 2021. We have the, school, so the Safe School Declaration. We have another one known as National School-Based Management Policy. And I think uh, we, we also have the Federal Republic of Nigeria National Policy on Education, which was uh, established in 2014. We have the National Teachers Education Policy, that is the pre-service and in-service, which is also um, established or produced in 2014. In 2014, We have the Nigerian Teachers Code of Conduct of 2006. We also have the Law Against Persons with Disability Prohibitions that is Disability Act. There is also the National Agency for the Prohibition of Trafficking in Persons. That is Prohibition Act of 2015. We, of course, have the Universal Basic Education Commission, which is UBEC. That is the Act of 2004. We have National Gender Policy. Individuals have their own rules in schools. We have also discovered that there are some, in fact, there are some CSOs that have, you know, produced policies policies on issues of self-guidance and ways of, you know, mitigating them. I really appreciate those, those CSOs. I think I was able to even, you know, snap some of these policies when I went for my field work. Again, we have um, school regulatory bodies, relevant ministries, departments and agencies, that is the MD and civil society in collaboration with Parent Teachers Association. We have the promote non-violent punishment in schools. So these are some of the you know, relevant laws that are, are there in order to save guide risks in education. And this is why I said we have many of them, but the problem is implementation. How far have we been implementing these policies? How far do we know about these policies so that we can use them and can be of, of benefit to us? I let me permit me here to say that uh, I really appreciate NEI because I work as the national coordinator for my organization form one with NE at the National, the, uh, national Education, Northern Education Initiative. It, I think it will go a long way in the reduction of risks education. Thank you very much, Prof. Uh, Prof, still on you, 
we know that aside from the formal education system, you know, where you have schools that are established by governments or, you know, apart from these formal, formal education systems, we also have non-formal education programs. Please, can you just briefly explain to our participants what are considered non-formal education programs in Nigeria and tell us if there are specific risks, safeguarding risks to non-formal education. Okay, non-formal education is an educational activity carried out outside the framework of the formal education system with the aim of making literate all those who for one reason or the other did not benefit from the formal school setting, that is system. So it means that uh, there are children who for one reason or the other were not able to benefit from the framework, from the formal setting of a school. And so these non-formal centers, are, they are established so as to take care of them. Who are these type of children? We have, for example, the out-of-school children, the almajiris, the children in the street, the nomadic illiterate, and even some of these girls who may fall victim of teenage pregnancy. So these and many others who are deprived of or could not, you know, get themselves enrolled in education and then these settings are established for them so as to give them the opportunity to acquire literacy and so that they can also be beneficial to themselves and to the society. And let me also appreciate many of the CSOs, and Mr. Nathaniel has explained in detail the role of the CSOs. In fact, CSOs are really complementing the complementing the effort of the government in these areas. Just like I've said, I have served in the capacity of a national uh, coordinator where I coordinated for Northern Education Initiative. We established over 3,000 centers between Sokoto and Bauchi State. Yes, they are specific, but in general, I must say that, you know, the, the, there are many similar safeguarding risks, but the specific ones, for example, I think I have mentioned earlier, is hard to reach areas because schools are not found in these areas. And so CSOs go as far as these areas to establish schools. But the problem is that there are a lot of risks. Take, for example, where we have river and there, are, there is no bridge. Children had to cross the river. And we had, uh, had during the course of my interview, we discovered that some children, you know, are at risk sometimes when they cross over the river to their learning centers. On their way back, they, they, there may be, you know, when rain falls, for example, they may not be able to cross back. And this is very risky and dangerous to them. We also have the issue of uh, sodomization, which is, which is seldom discussed, but it also happens. We also have the issue of sometimes, you know, rape and harassment, exploitation, which we also have mentioned in the other. So these are some of the you know, a specific risks associated. And then just like I've said, especially also in the non-formal uh, sector. Thank you. Thank you very much, Prof. So Nathaniel, please, quickly, what are the ways CSOs can help in mitigating these different safeguarding risks in education program? We've seen that there are actually a myriad of risks, you know, so many of them. And see, you've mentioned really, you know, how CSOs get involved in education programs in Nigeria and they are getting involved in so many ways. Please, can you share with us how they can help in mitigating um, some of these safeguarding risks? Yes, thanks a lot, um, Oge. You're, you're very correct to say that there are many risks and as many as the risks are, so are the opportunities for CSOs to support. And for the purpose of classifying areas where CSOs can support. I'll just speak under a few headlines. One will be in the area of supporting policies and procedures in the educational institutions. Another will be supporting with training and awareness, both for staff and the students. Also supporting with improving the culture in the schools and doing advocacy as well as with reporting and response mechanisms. I will highlight each of these very briefly. Uh, so in the area of supporting with policies and procedures, 
Uh, CSOs can support by promoting awareness about relevant laws and policies that exist. Uh, like Prof mentioned, we have laws that have been enacted by the federal government, but we also have policies enacted by uh, policies developed by state governments that, that see to the protection of children. We have a number of states that have child protection policies. So raising awareness about those laws and policies is an important way to help prepare both the students and the school children and the staff in responding appropriately. They can also support with helping schools review their rules, individual schools, as well as working with the Ministry of Education to review the code of conduct for teachers, code of conduct for, for teachers in the, in the schools, as well as a code of conduct regarding entry and exit into and out of schools, both, uh, you know, during sessions. They can support in various other ways, including uh, improving security and surveillance in schools, especially over the past few years where we have had incidents of kidnapping of children and deliberate attacks on children in school and when they're on the way, it, ha it, it helps to support in the area of building a sense of security and surveillance for children. There are many other ways, including supporting schools to see to it that children that are vulnerable are protected using the same policies as we, we discussed. That's quite a number. I don't know how much time, so let me just also hint on issues of training and awareness. Training and awareness, in addition to raising awareness about existing laws and policies, it helps to also take time to train staff and other adults involved in educating children about specific uh, safeguarding standards, policies and procedures helping them to also understand how they could contribute to the safeguarding of children in and around their school, and especially as long as they are under their care. Schools could also be supported through trainings that enable them to respond better. Responding better to safeguarding risks involves, one, responding on time, responding appropriately, and in a manner that uh, sees to the protection of children. And a lot of these is only through trainings that people can uh, be helped to do uh, this better. Another one is also helping schools to develop and ensure report, you know, that they have uh, effective reporting mechanisms in the schools so that the teachers, the school has a system for reporting risks and violations or abuses and then you know who takes who, who responds accordingly within time frames that are appropriate. So trainings can happen in, in all these areas but in addition to training staff and, and students and staff and the other adults in the schools it helps to also train children so that one the children are able to know whom to report to how to report to and what to expect also helping them to um, be able to identify risks where they are exposed to same they can also, CSOs can also support with uh, sensitizing children and students, especially about where to access information that is useful to them, and also with helping them develop systems for responding to risks of abuse in a manner that is uh, appropriate for the locations where they find themselves. Another area is with reporting and response systems. This is very important. The Violence Against Children survey of 2014 indicated that most children exposed to abuse are not able to find support. So it, in the end, only about 6% of children actually know whom to report to, uh, where to report to, and, 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 and all of this. So this is a very important area. It's an important gap that needs to be addressed. So CSOs can support schools to have a system for reporting abuses and risks of abuses and have the system to run effectively so that when the reports are given, appropriate action is taken. 
And also that these reports are not just responded to individually, but also contribute towards improving the policy, policy culture in the school for enhancing um, safeguarding of children. I think another very important area is with culture. By culture here, we are talking about helping schools to develop, to cultivate a culture that sees to the safety of children. So that when children come to school and are learning, they feel safe. There's a powerful impact when a child feels safe in an environment. They learn better, they interact better. And so uh, the opposite is where children can be in school but are not able to learn. So developing a culture of safety for children is a very important area. And this is important for both children who are learning and for teachers who are teaching, as well as the entire uh, school management. Another area is with advocacy. So civil society organizations can have an important role in supporting with advocacy to influence government at all levels to respond appropriately to the issues that emerge in the school system. The, ex the abuses, the exposure to abuses, and failures with responding adequately or timely, and so on. And so advocacy could target the, the, the lead ministry, which would be the Ministry of Education, but also ministries, departments, and, and uh, agencies that have relevant mandates. So in this regard, because a lot of these abuses affect the health and well-being of children, you would be targeting advocacy to the Ministry of Health as well. NACA, which is the agency in charge of the control of, you know, National Agency for the Control of AIDS and uh, mm -hmm. other sexual and gender-based services. In some states in Nigeria, we have the SACS, which is the Sexual Abuse Response uh, Centers. So advocating to, with government to have these in other states, I think now we have it in just a couple of states in Nigeria and the FCT. Having them in all states is also an important way to help safeguard our children. And this is an area that civil society organizations can support with a true advocacy. Also, uh, we cannot do any of these without responsible allocations in, the, in terms of budgets. And so advocacy would also involve having governments to allocate funds that would be used towards addressing these a number of these. Okay, you would agree with me that in many states in Nigeria, budgeting for child protection and child safeguarding is an area that many government functionaries are yet to understand. And so when you talk about budgeting, sometimes it's not just that they don't want to budget for it. The other one is that they don't even know how to budget for, for things exactly. like that. Yes, so civil yeah. society organizations can support with building capacity of responsible government authorities to understand how to budget for child protection and child safeguarding accordingly. And so these are, are ways, some of the ways that CSOs can support. I, I do acknowledge that some CSOs have done this in the past and there have been positive outcomes. I know in the state where I'm operating, the, the, at the point there was no budget for child protection, but with some uh, consistent effort, government allocated some amount on the, the, the by budget head known as vulnerable children. That was some progress. And we're hoping that it could develop and um, until they begin to look at the, the specific issues on the, that's, that would contribute toward protection and safeguarding of children. So uh, these are some of the areas that are very important. It's not exhaustive. There are many other areas. And because we live in an evolving environment, and as the situation evolves and risks, new risks are identified, CSOs can also formulate strategies and tactics for working with relevant authorities to see to the safeguarding of children. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed for that detailed explanation and your last words about taking that risk-based approach, identify the risk and then try to have measures to help in mitigating the identified risk. But you've given us a comprehensive mitigation measures to start with. And then, you know, um, CSOs can now continue to learn and improve on what they are doing. So uh, we are coming to the end of this podcast. As we wrap up, 
let's hear from you, Prof. Rafatu. What are some of your parting words to our listeners? Okay, thank you very much, Madam Oge. My parting word for our listeners, first of all, is to always consult RSH for their different activities on the educational sector, especially in the issue of self-guiding. We should also be able to be, to be able to speak out, to be our security conscious ourselves, and then to be our brother's keepers. Here, I mean, when you see a wrong or a harm done on an individual, especially on child, try to speak out and, and encourage the victim also to speak out and discourage the culture of, uh, of silence. Again, let's also ensure that perpetrators are punished and let us stay safe and be security conscious once again. And I thank RSS for this opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you, Prof. Thank you. Let's hear from you, Nathaniel, your parting words, please. I'd like to say that safeguarding, we've used that concept repeatedly in the course of our conversation today. And safeguarding is more important than just talking about it. I would encourage that every listener should speak to the next person about the importance of safeguarding because safeguarding means that one, we want to prevent the occurrence of abuse and exploitation against any vulnerable person, including our children. The second is actually responding to the incidences where it occurs. And the third is then um, ensuring that the system is in place for making sure things like that don't happen again. Our children have been exposed to too much violence that has left them, quite a number of them, traumatized without realizing they are traumatized. We need to safeguard our children so that we'll have a better, a healthy society going forward. Thank you for the opportunity of sharing with, with all of us uh, today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and have gained a lot understanding the safeguarding risk in education programs and ways as CSOs we can mitigate uh, some of those risks and also the some relevant laws we have in Nigeria to actually support the work we do on safeguarding. But again, awareness of some of those laws are not there. So as CSOs, yes, that's also one of the things you can do to continue to raise awareness of those laws. Thank you very much to our panelists for the insightful discussion. At RSH, I would like to inform our listeners that any CSO in Nigeria can have additional information on our website by subscribing to our newsletter. You can also watch out the space for our future engagements on this issue in our website. Thanks to you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you want to learn more about this program, why not visit our online hub at nigeria.safeguardingsupporthub.org. If you have any comments on this episode or want to share your thoughts for the focus of future episodes, please contact us via social media on Facebook or LinkedIn or send us an email on info at safeguardingsupporthub.org. Thanks for joining and see you in our next podcast.